Yes, hello, folks. Welcome to the weekly Matches Network podcast. I'm your host, as always, Phil Branch, with my excellent co host here, James Rhodes. James, how are you doing, mate? How was your weekend? Pretty good, pretty good. It was all right. Normal, yeah, didn't lose this weekend. yeah, yeah. We didn't have to deal with that. That was kind yeah. of a nice, uh, it was a nice break. I've kind of practically forgot the season's ongoing this January. We're, there's no transfer business, there's no games ongoing. It's like kind of nice it's a little stress-free isn't it yeah um yeah it was quite uh quite quiet this weekend i did watch some football but um as as, as masochistic as this may seem i actually do miss it when you need to play i do also appreciate not having that feeling on a saturday or a sunday where you know i want to i, I want to smack the kids about and stuff and yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh my god Oh, this is getting harder and harder to stay off a wagon, you know. So, um, no, but, um, no it, it's uh, a much needed break for United, of course. Lots of stuff happened. Uh, maybe that things didn't happen on the field, but off the field, uh, of course, yes. big appointment with Omar Barada. A uh, lot, we'll talk a lot about that. Uh, I want to touch about a few other things. I'll touch about uh, some of the findings that any of us are coming to understand what's going on inside United, which is quite interesting. Uh, Ratcliffe moving at the speed of light with some of the changes that are being made also with um, the efficiency, with how they're moving players on, which is even that yeah. is something that um, we haven't been used to. Um, and of course, the fact that they were able to make the Omar Barada appointment without any speculation whatsoever, which honestly, when you look back at what, we have now learned that they went after him in December. That is really quite remarkable. You know, we were able to pull off something like that without any leaks. So, first of all, what was your opinion on Omar Brada? Exciting. I mean, really exciting because I think what we've talked about for the longest period of time is that, you know, we want uh, somebody serious coming in. I mean, at the end of the day, it's not that complicated. It, it can always seem so complicated to do the right things. Um, but the right actions, as we've discussed, start from the top. If your intention is to have the best football club on the planet and to get results and to win, then the actions you're going to take are going to follow that. Yeah. Omar Barada is a, an example of that, a very clear example of that. He's the first appointment, and I mean like executive appointment made by Manchester United in probably 20 years that is purely down to finding the best man available for the job at an executive level from a yeah. football standpoint, mm -hmm. somebody who has the experience on all aspects of this and, and recognize that, you know, the CEO, given this kind of interesting dynamic that we have at play here between Ineos, the Glazers and football control and all of that, um, <laughs> he's the CEO. He doesn't have more power than what Ineos have on the football side of things. But you really do need somebody who's going to help the club be successful financially without losing sight of the football side of it. And that's always been the mistake, right, at, at Manchester United, is that they've had accountants and bankers and people who may know what they're doing in terms of dollars and cents, but like Edward Woodward said, uh, that he felt that the results on the pitch had no connection with their you know, ability financially. He's got it wrong. And this is somebody who has that connection who has the experience in both worlds at two of the most successful groups in the history of football, Barcelona during their heyday, essentially when they were the best team in the world. 
um, with Pep Guardiola, with all of these people. And, and again, it's city football group and, and city itself. So it's perfect. And it's, and it's, and it's why I have a lot of faith in people like Jim Ratcliffe and Ineos moving forward, because they're not just going to do the expected thing. I mean, they're not going to do the, we're going to have no offense, but we're going to have a real Ferdinand as director of football. And this yeah. person is that it's not that kind of thing. It's, it's, they're not going to pick an obvious name because it's obvious because it's interesting because it's what people want and because it's, it's what's out there. This is somebody who is clearly found to say, this is the best person that suits what we want. And yeah. nobody really knew who he was. And that's very good. The two times United have got it right in their history was appointing people on that very, um, you know, uh, that the, the, the very premise. They have to be the right person for the job. We had these stupid things that creeped into, you know, the lexicon, like they need to get the club and all this nonsense, right? So, yeah. so Matt Busby, in my opinion, United's greatest ever manager, right? Um, played for Man City and Liverpool. In fact, Liverpool had offered him a job, um, which he turned down um, and then went to United. United got him out of the army. And uh, I doubt Sir Matt got the club, right? Ferguson had never set foot inside United, um, was not someone that got the club, but brought the best attributes to the job. United have appointed people from within for their key positions. And it's all been nepotism and cronyism. And it's never been about who's the right person for the job, who brings the best attributes. The other thing that appointing someone that doesn't have these relationships is that they don't feel a sense of obligation to protect their friends, right? So all of a sudden, I'm not friends with this guy, I'm not friends with this. This is about someone that doesn't have those existing relationships. It's coming in, evaluating somebody purely on their ability to do their job because how they are evaluated depends on how the people beneath them, you know, that are answerable to them, do their jobs. Yep. For PSR, for profit sustainability rules, the only way to make sustainable profit is to monetize your success because there's a shelf life for how long you can monetize your history. Okay, especially yep. in today's world where you know we're inundated with media, we're inundated with you know we've got a goldfish by attention span now, and the you know '99 Champions League final has a shelf life. You know these kids today yep. are playing video games, are watching all these different clubs, all these different clips, and that's what you're competing <clears throat> with, competing for that attention. And um, you know, so the, the the only way to really um, have legitimate, sustainable profit is through con uh, continued success. Um, I think what it also says suggests to me, and I think that was really telling in the statement. You know, where it said we're going to get back to putting football as the priority of United have spent close to 20 years denying that this was the case. I can't imagine yeah. mm -hmm. the Glazers would have been thrilled about that statement or if they would have endorsed it. Now, we're told that Joel and Avram were a part of the process of appointing mm -hmm. Omar Bradham. Now, Joel and Avram could have done something like this 10 years ago. I mean, it's great that Radcliffe's doing this, but this is all obvious stuff. This is all stuff that they were told to do a decade mm -hmm. ago. Point somebody yeah. that understands how to run a football club that has the ability to do it, that you're not going to grow into that position because it's impossible to do that. It takes years. And even if you do grow someone into it, there's no guarantee they're going to reach the level of their peers, right? So why not just get someone ready-made? So um, this is doing the obvious, but 
that statement was taken as scalpel to the Glazers, Richard Arnold, Woodward, and everything that have been complaining, fans have been complaining about for 20 years that United have been denying. I mean, how long ago was it Richard Arnold said that United are getting closer to City? Yeah, yeah, well, it's not that long ago, was it? Mm. So I know, and, and I was surprised. It, it's very interesting. I, I was I was a little surprised by the way that the wording of the statement yeah, was. Sorry. But it was the best statement that's been made. Now, statements are just statements. However, the action that went with that statement was in alignment. It was one of the best actions <laughs> that they've done in a long time. So you have to take it positively in that respect. Um you know, it's it's an interesting thing, this, because it's a really, here's the really good sign about it all. I understand why people have been concerned for such a long time that uh, since the hearing about the minority stake in this deal, that um, it, you end up with a situation where, you know, Jim Ratcliffe as a minority partner is not able to do much and is not able to influence much and is not able to change much. The thing about it, and I've tried to explain this many times, and I think sometimes people take it as a, as a, uh, I don't know, a defense, you know, like when I called them investors, the Glazers on the on Twitter, and people jumped all over it. Well, um, man, you gotta earn that. You gotta earn that PR money somehow. I mean, I, 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 I Qatari PR money and he's the Glazer uh, <laughs> PR money. You didn't share it with me. I feel offended well, I, I by just, that. I don't think they think I'm that important. That the Qataris <laughs> and Sir Gemma be sending me checks. Go ahead. <laughs> no, but you know, and uh, the thing is, is, is the Glazers are. <laughs> They're capitalists. I mean, it's just that of simple. Course. They're capitalists. They just want money. They want to mm -hmm. make money. And one of the things that I, I'm sure you want to discuss, but that was broken down really well by the guys at The Athletic and, and elsewhere, is the financial situation of United. Mm. The club is leveraged to death. There's no more that can be done. And so it's they don't have a choice. You understand? I think people have to understand that. They don't have yeah. a choice. Mm -hmm. This is They have to do what Jim Ratcliffe says because he is providing survival for them as owners of this club uh, in, in the eventuality that he's likely going to take over. He's, and I think that is where it will go. And I very strongly believe that's where it will go in the long term as well, that he will take over the full thing. But Jim Ratcliffe is the guy that's going to fix this. They know it. They have to trust him and they will trust him. And this is a sign of doing so. Of course, it was done in conjunction with the Glazers. And uh, there's truth to that because, of course, they're on the board. They're the ones who have to appoint the CEO. Joel Glazer is still the chairman uh, and still has to make that appointment. They still have the majority stake as a group. And Joel and Avram still basically carry all, all mm -hmm. the power from their siblings, you know, signed off to them and things like that in most uh, decisions. So, of course, but it was fully made at the recommendation and advisement of Ineos and Sir Jim Ratcliffe. And the fact that they've gone ahead with it is a positive sign uh, because you got the C a CEO who understands it, who's going to want guarantees as to the scope of what control and power and influence he has in the job. Because someone like that does not yes, accept absolutely. the job on principle, just on the name. He's not accepting that job without without really concrete guarantees over how this is going to operate and that and and that's a positive sign if someone is willing to take on that job um the other factor that i would say in this is that in my personal opinion i think in the long term and this is a little bit informed because it's something i heard before and something i was told again in the long term i think there was an admiration for this individual from Ineos because 
they have a view of a multi-club model in the future, and he has a lot of experience in it. And that is the way that the top clubs in football are going. It's the only yeah. way for English clubs to get talents from South America mm-hmm. where they cannot get into the country because of work permit and Brexit and things like that right away. Um, obviously, it's what City have done successfully, uh, where now they have a second club, you know, in Girona, the top of the top of La Liga right now. It's an incredible feat. But that's the way that it's going. He's someone who has experience in that. And um, I think there's benefits there. But, you know, I, I think it's a positive sign of the Glazers looking at it and saying, this is the best way for us to financially be successful. And that means the club's going to be successful, too, in this respect. And, and I know that it's there's a lot of pain in that, like, duality of things where the club does better and is more successful. The Glazers are more profitable. I know people don't like it, but it's a fact of the matter. They own it. They have it. It's theirs. There's nobody who can forcibly take it. We've seen how hard it has been and through all these filings and things that have come out and how difficult it was just to get to this point in time for anybody that um, this is the the best way for United as a, as a football club to uh, to return to where it should be. Look, profit's not a dirty word. Yeah. Okay. It's okay to make money. It's about how you make it. It's about what are the principles of your company. If you can make money by taking care of your primary, uh, your, your your primary responsibility, which is to have an exceptional football team on the pitch, and you want to monetize your success, fine. I have no problems with that. I don't care how many commemorative 2025 Champions League winners shirts you want to sell. I don't give yeah. a shit. Right? Personally, I don't care. Now, if you want to overcharge United fans for getting in to watch mediocrity, I have a problem with that. If you look at United's finances, and I strongly encourage anyone to go listen to the Talk of the Devils podcast last week that brilliantly elucidates how precarious this is. Now, um, I'm doing this off memory, so forgive me if I get this wrong, but uh, I believe you've got this largely right. So... Um, over on profit sustainability rules, you're allowed to lose anywhere between 15 to 19 million over the course of three years, right? Now, you can mitigate that by uh, 105 because 105, there's right? a 90 million gap between them, yeah. 105. Now, you can mitigate that by owners injecting cash on a one time basis, which of course the Glazers are not going to do, right? Um, United are a year and a half into that process and they haven't added any deductions yet, but are close to 250 million loss, right? Yeah. This is really staggering how bad this is, right? Um, and uh, when I look at these, I mean, there's no way United would have been compliant with profit and sustainability rules in three years. And you could see now the impact in the January transfer window with the, the, the t- fact that teams now have seen that these rules have teeth. And they're going to result in points deductions, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that are sailing close to the wind. Um, without some type of rescue package, United would have been in serious trouble. And it would have put the Glazers under selection pressure to decide whether to put money in, yeah. um, have a catastrophic serious points deduction or other, uh, and or you know reach out to more desperate forms of capital, venture capital at a much higher interest rate, much higher risk. Um, they had no other option but to do something like this. And by the way, this is going to take years for Ratcliffe to fix. It makes your blood boil. Joe Glazer benefited to the tune of an extra 60 million by that dragged yeah. out 
appeal process. United were charged every commission, every lawyer's fee, you know, every single um, serious and ancillary cost for that process was charged to Manchester. It just makes your blood boil, right? Yeah. Because United are already in a precarious financial situation. I mean, the 60 million that Joe Glazer took out, you know, the, the all the commissions and fees, I mean, we're talking here a uh, Jude Bellingham, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just infuriating, right? But at the same time, the positive is this is the last cash grab on this level where, you know, yes, like if they make money in the future, it'll be solely based on United success. It'll be on the yeah. fact that United are successful. Let me ask you one other variable that, that kind of concerns me a bit because um, the Qataris have been quite vocal about the fact that they're seeking legal advice over the SEC filing. If they can test legally what's in that SEC filing and say, that's not true, we provided proof of funds, um, could this delay the process? I don't think so. Uh, I, I, I don't think so at all. Um, you know, on the one hand, because given that uh, they accepted a minority share sale at the end of the day. I don't think that they had any legal obligation to accept the Qatari bid, whether it proved funds or not. Uh, at best, I think it could, I don't, I don't know this necessarily, but I think at best it would just drag into some kind of mess. However, at the same time, my personal opinion is <laughs> even that about seeking legal advice is once again, a briefing sent to their favorite reporters their favorite you people. think about that though, but even put not in a public domain. Well, could, is that not enough for someone at the SEC to launch an investigation and say, wait a minute, this sure, is sure. You know, is that I sure. mean that is but here here's the thing. What's the downside to for Qatar to say that they did? They can't be prosecuted for it. They're not mm. operating it within the United States for saying that they did when they didn't. And they're not making filings to the SEC. There's no downside for them. They've put it to their PR reporters. Why has it not gone straight to the SEC as a statement to the government? Why has it gone through? And, and this is an offense to them, their reporters, but why has it gone to Keegan and Darmish? Well, let me why? ask you this. If you're Qatar, right, <clears throat> there was a million off-ramps in this process where they could have left with their integrity intact. They could have mm -hmm. turned around and said... Mm -hmm. Okay, we don't have proof of funds. We don't have the ability to buy or whatever, right? Or our bid's not serious. Why didn't they turn around and say, three months into this, do you know what? We don't believe this is value for money. We don't believe the Glazers are serious and take off. Now, Glazers, in my opinion, wanted them to stay involved or give the illusion that they're involved in order to put pressure on Ratcliffe. Yep. So yep. why would the Qataris allow the Glazers to use them? And why wouldn't they take one of the options of taking a, a, a respectable exit rather than losing out on the bid process, claiming they were in, in you know, for Manchester United up until the last minute, and then an SEC filing show and they've never showed proof of funds. I'm trying to understand what the upside is to them. I mean, to be quite honest, my opinion on this is, uh, I don't remember what law this is, but uh, I think it's just borderline incompetence. I think that this is, this bid, this, this, uh, this movement by Qatar into this deal has never been as professional or as, uh, you know, I don't know how I would put this, but 
it's it's really interesting well, when yeah, you, when you kind of, never never assume a conspiracy whatever incompetence yeah, will do yeah yeah exactly something like that or you know mm. don't put down to yeah, you know yeah, yeah, ill yeah. intent what you can put down to stupidity and these types yeah, of things I and that, i think yeah. that's the simplest answer to the whole thing is that it's really interesting because at the end of the day there might have been you know i think there's a degree my my theory on on the qatari bid in general uh, kind of evolved over the time of the information that came out to where uh, I think a portion of it was quite a group of individuals related to this, you know, uh, the son of, you know, these are the names that are there and uh, they didn't have that much money. And I think that part of the idea was if they could make a deal for the club, then they would get more backing from the state at that point in time through different avenues. Uh, and it's one of the reasons that the Glazers went to speak with the, um, uh, Al Nasir, right? Nasir yeah, Al Khalifi. That's right, Nasir Al Khalifi, to uh, to find out about this, to ask about this, which didn't go anywhere, and it didn't raise the bid, it didn't do anything. And I just wonder about that. I mean, I, I I've never subscribed to the idea that Qatar would just pay as much money as it takes to get the deal done. Uh, I think there's been more to it than that. I mean, PSG, they sold a stake off in it recently. I'm not sure that the state feels that these football clubs are the best investment at the moment for them. And ultimately, there is a financial aspect to all of this. Um, you know, I mean, they, they tried to bid back in 2010, right? The government, and they didn't pay whatever it took back then either, or 2012, whenever it was. And honestly, I just think Overall, I'd be really surprised because it's not just the Glazers making that SEC filing. That's Rain Group signing off on it. That's many, many, many banks, advisors, and people involved in this deal who reviewed, underwrote, uh, advised, and did so much on that deal. Some of the biggest you know, groups in, in the United States who essentially would have agreed with that assessment and the decision and, and the outcome of it. And I will always personally put a lot more stock in people who are willing to put things in legal documentation than people who are just putting things out through the media. We've never seen anything related yeah, to the Qatari bid. We've never seen anything. Yeah, look, there's obviously consequences for lying. You know, yeah. to the SEC is totally different lying to a journalist. I'm not saying they're lying, by the way. I don't, right. I don't know. Uh, what I will say is this. Um, yeah. I remember sitting with Woodward in San Francisco and uh, it was... It was the year United sold Di Maria. And nonetheless, I was talking to him about Di Maria and PSG. And I remember him saying to me, he goes, let me tell you something. They are very tough negotiators. This mm -hmm. idea that they just throw money around, they're going to have their pants pulled down by a bunch of Westerners that just think they've got money to burn. They have money, but they're not, they're, they're, they're not reckless. Now, yes, they, they, if, if, when the state gets involved in something like the World Cup where they throw exorbitant amounts of money around, you know, we don't understand the logic, but I'm sure on their end it made perfect sense. Um, you know, with United, United bring a certain level of scrutiny that not everybody wants. And there's a different cost-benefit for everybody in that type of transaction. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't know if incompetence or not i mean there's obviously intelligent people but yeah i just wonder if it was something where they really wanted that bad and i just feel that if it was something that was very important to the qataris um geopolitically or otherwise then i think they they probably would have went to a price point um but there's so many variables that we don't understand that yeah for sure that affect how people do things and 
Um, ideally, I would have preferred a hundred percent full seal where we yeah. had these squatters removed and that I never had to deal with them ever again. I never had to ever, you know, compromise my, you know, buy Manchester United trucks. I don't want to fund them and all that. Like it's just, it's put us in a very difficult position. That's changed my relationship with the football club that I love. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously people can have their own. It's going to mean different things to different people, yeah. but how they square, you know, the, 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 the morals and ethics of any owner, whether it's Jim Ratcliffe or whether it's the Qataris or whether it's the Glazers, it's, you know, it's not up to me to tell you how to feel. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, we, I, I, what I would say, and we said this on uh, Christmas Day, that United are in a better position today than anything they've been in in the yeah. last 18 years. And we're seeing... An accelerated rate of change at the football club that is really, really encouraging. To go back to Umar Barada, what does that now mean for John Murda? Yeah, I mean, there's two aspects to this. One is that probably not much immediately because remember that the hiring and appointing of a football director comes purely under Ineos's purview. Uh, and Omar Barada cannot start until I believe August or in the summer, regardless, as the expectation is going to on gardening leave through at least the bulk of the transfer window, uh, given that he's been working in, in city and all of that. Obviously, kind of not officially or formally, it's like, what are you going to do? Stop the guy from having a yeah, well, Brailsford? Peter Kenny was put on garden and leave, and all of a sudden, yeah. you know, what Veron goes to Chelsea, Chelsea <laughs> yeah, 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 Aaron yeah. Robin. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. which which Ferguson had lined up a Robin deal all of a sudden. I know. Peter Canyon, you know, Robins. So we know that that is a technical term, but, but it, it is, it is, it is technical. But sorry, go for, ahead. For legal purposes, you know, he's yes. on gardening leave and he's not officially in the job. That being said, though, yes, the director of football thing, as far as I understand it from the SEC filing, goes entirely under Enios's view. Whereas your CEO is still technically reporting to the board, right? And making decisions that usually often have to be approved by the board of directors. Um, so it's a little bit of interesting because we don't know what the relationship will be. Obviously, Barada is someone Ineos likes. So I imagine that they're going to take his input on lots of things, even if they have the total say on this at the end of the day. Um, it is a weird dynamic a little bit, how you have a CEO who's, not under the Ineos group, technically, you know, in that they have two board seats, he is, but but then they have control over what's underneath him entirely. It's interesting. It's it's an interesting dynamic. We'll have to see how it plays out. I, I do think that as far as I know, um, I mentioned on a video about it was exactly 10 days prior to this appointment that, that uh, Ratcliffe and Ineos were set to make their recommendations in the next seven to 10 days on these things. I believe that the director of football side of it and sporting director is something that is going to be changing for sure. I, I'm almost positive it's changing, but I do think it's going to wait until February, um, until February when it's approved, given that it's entirely under their view. When you look at it legally, um, the Glazers, it would have to be their idea during this transition period in terms yeah. of who they appoint as a football director or and then approved by Enios, or it would have to be Enios, but they're not allowed to appoint somebody yet, so it's probably going to be a few weeks. But I think that will come pretty soon, frankly. I mean, we've talked about this, but they need to get started in, by March, you know, in, in planning the window and yeah. doing everything that needs to be done. It's got to be happening in March. So 
I think it, I think change is coming. I mean, when you look at the the type of appointment you're making with someone like you know with, with Omar Barati, then come on, like if you're going for best in class at every position, change is coming. And of course, everybody. And James, look, when you identify some of the major issues of United, which are obvious, recruitment being one of them, it's hard to see how John Murda. Maybe he gets moved into a different capacity, but yeah, it's hard yeah. to see how you could possibly exculpate him and say, well, I know recruitment was bad. You know, if you look at um, one of the issues that any also identified as being a colossal waste of money was the Casemiro deal. That was a John Murder deal. Now, in John Murder's defense, right, Garnacho was also his deal. Yeah. I mean, they yeah. sent Garnacho, Gerardo, Alvaro Fernandez, um, you know, players, and they're making profits on them. Yeah. Which is and nice. and, and yeah. they were all pre-Brexit, right? Because yeah. now you can't get 18 year olds into yeah. uh, the UK and, and into academies. And this is of course why this multi-club model is really important. If you look at City, they have clubs at all different levels, right? Uh, Red Bull, for example, you know, they have Salzburg. And then they've got another upgrade. And if you look at how they moved Sesco, Holland, you know, they moved, they, they started in Austria, but then they go to the Bundesliga, then they make the next jump. So you never have Lausanne, you know, of course, Nice, and then, you know, the next jump. Yeah. This is going to be really, really important. I was talking to an individual in football about youth recruitment. And uh, they work for a uh, Premier League club. And he was saying to me, he goes, listen, you see the youth recruitment um, industry? It's probably more competitive yeah. than the top end. Because here's yeah. what you've got now. You have a number of clubs outside the Premier League that can't compete at the top end. So they're really, really aggressive and going after young kids, 15, 16, right? Everybody wants the next Messi. Everybody wants, you know, the next superstar, the next Holland, you know, 10, six, seven million, right? And this is why you can't grow someone into that position because, you know, you're growing, you're, you're competing with people that have millions and millions of dedicated resources that people have exceptional contacts in countries with agents, with football clubs. Yep. And they, because they have their, you're, you're not just competing with a club, you're competing with a group. You know, City have a presence in Australia and the United States and, you know, all over Europe and then Spain. So they're, you know, they, they, they are signing multiple players. Um, and United are trying to get a couple of kids into the academy at, at Carrington. You know, this is this is something that you can't grow somebody, and they have to be completely. You know, that that is already established at this level. Um, that is being alerted to kids at 16, 17. I mean, City have gone out and signed Atchavari, right? United should be all over things like that. There, you know, you, you look at what Chelsea are doing, right? Because there's obviously they're they're doing two things. They're, they're signing players so that maybe 90% of them won't make it, but they can sell them for a profit and it helps FFP. If 10% make it, that's extremely successful. Yeah. Yeah. United are so far behind in that area. And you could see, James, if a number of those players were at United, they would be in his first team. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm watching, I'm watching yeah. Jerome yesterday and they have a guy on the left wing, Savio. Yeah. And he's exceptional. Absolutely exceptional. Right? And that guy, you know, would walk uh -huh. in Right, and you look at how Threadburg squad is. This is where you need to really have to catch up. So um, yeah. this is the first sign that football is now going to be the metric with which you're going to be determined as a success. And just like you were saying, you don't get a no more Barada by offering him an extra few million, right? Because he's going to be exceptionally well paid. He can go anywhere and get well paid. This is a guy that judges himself on the success of his job. 
So United will have had to make major assurances to him that he will be given the authority to make the changes that he wants. Um, And he also making changes at a rapid pace. Uh, I know you want to come in on this. One other thing that I want to mention, and you've mentioned this before in a podcast, I've had this firmed up. Um, And I know people have different opinions on this. People are very emotional, whatever way you, you, you lean on it. Um, I've always been a supporter of Ten Hag. I've softened a bit on that over the last few weeks, having spoken to people inside football that really know what they're talking about, that have pointed out certain criticisms to me that I don't have the ability, I'm not educated enough to know, but subtleties are like, oh, okay, I never thought about that, never thought about that. But I'm told that Ineos are not totally thrilled with him. That doesn't mean he's going to get sacked, but I'm saying that he has work to do to convince them that he's the right man for the for the long term. Yeah, and, and I think we talked about last time you asked me, what does he have to do to keep his job? And, mm. you know, when you look at it, I think the thing that you have to bear in mind is the standards. You look at some of the things that have come out about a person like Barada. Well, that's the type of thinking that's going to pervade the club. You don't get three to four years to prove you're the right person and you know, and uh, you don't get to use the word that you hate like a project and say it's going to take you years to build this project and to do this and that, and you know, and everything that's gone on. Um, <clears throat> there's there's two major issues. Uh, one is that the league form and performances are atrocious, and they're truly, yeah, they truly are. atrocious. They Somebody are. did posted something just today that I thought was interesting too, and and I'm not in, uh, you know, I'm not 100% on all advanced stats and things, but someone posted that you know, the expected points after 59 league games, expected points, meaning the games you should have won, you know, should have got points in these types of things, right? Kind of like expected goals. There's some metrics to them, but after 59 games, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was, was first with uh, around 109. And that kind of makes sense. Uh, he had a pretty good run through, you know, early management, things like that. Jose Mourinho was second with 107. Luis Fagnol was third in 98. And Eric Ten is at 91. Now, when you just think about that in terms of the number of games, it means that over 59 points, you know, over 59 games in in general, you're talking about averaging one and a half points. You should have won, and that's sure, not good enough. Know, yeah, this is the this is the paradox that United. If I'm, yeah. you know, Keith Foss, I could sit there and quote a number of statistics that support yeah. Ten Hag. Yeah. And look, that's the final out there. Um, your eyes can't, aren't portraying you. What we're seeing on yep. the pitch is evidence in itself. Yep. Um, but, you know, Ten Hag has the highest win percentage of any United manager over his tenure in history. And the highest loss, I think. Right, I, believe. I know. And this is what I'm saying. <laughs> it just makes no sense, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and you're going, you know, you could steal man an argument for, for both. Yeah. Um, and, and, it, and it could be, you know, bulletproof, no question. Yep. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm going, up until a month ago, I was I want I, I I'm 100 behind this guy. I'm not blinded by the fact that he had certain failures, but I watched Bournemouth Liverpool yesterday, and Liverpool yeah. took right four 0 at uh, Vitality, and well, that's a team that essentially beat United four 0 at Old Trafford. I mean, just walked all over them, and you know I'm sitting there going, <laughs> I mean, Liverpool are what five points to the top of the table, and going it. I don't know. I mean, United can't keep losing games like this to the standard of opposition. Yeah. I had no doubt. But I'm going, 
give me a reason to believe. And yep. I don't, I, I, I think um, for him, um, the, the, this whole Ineos thing is a great thing for him, but it's also the biggest threat to him because yeah. a properly run football club, and as we can see with Ratcliffe and Ineos, they're not being patient. Right. Yep. Uh, you mentioned something there about being having two years to prove yourself as a manager. This is also something that they're going to lay down on players. Now, when yep. I spoke to Franz Hoke a couple of weeks ago, we spoke about this. I think I mentioned it on last week's podcast or the podcast before where he had said, look, essentially a, a top club, you get two years. If you haven't proven by your second yep. year that you're at that level, you're gone. Right. Yeah. And this yep. is, you know, we we're specifically talking about Anthony, and this is where one of the biggest frustrations with United is being players getting contract renewals, contract renewals when when they haven't earned them, and we're sitting here after three years saying maybe Van de Beek will come good, or maybe you know we need to unlock Pogba, <laughs> you know all this madness. They like, I mean, you, this is you, yeah. you don't get two, three years to prove yourself if you don't, if you can't do it quickly, you gotta go, and. Um, so I think you know that that leash is is shortening, and it's going to shorten on ten hard too. Yep. Yeah, for sure, it is. It is. I mean, at the end of the day, football is always going to be a results business, and it's also always going to be a what have you done for me lately business. You know, the the winnings of the past, the success of certain periods is not going to hold you over for too long, especially in the modern game. It's not a game where you know nobody at United has the pedigree, has the results, has the you know, the, the success of someone like Sir Alex, where if he had gone a couple of years without winning something, it's like, it's not a, you, you run through it um, because of what he's done in the past, but nobody has. And then obviously the second aspect is when you're talking about hiring these people, people like Omar Barada and the people they want to bring are not going to sit there and say, yeah, we want to make all these changes. We want to sell these players. We want to buy these players, but manager doesn't want to. So I guess, you know, it's in his contract. We're just going to, deal with that and he can we'll let him shape the squad i mean at the end of the day that's 90 percent of football business is shaping the squad to be what you need it to be to be successful they're not going to have it i've said this before they will not accept the present arrangements and present agreements to continue they will you, not you you simply cannot have a recruitment structure that is completely dependent upon um the manager because yeah. managers, you know, the average shelf life three, four years. And if managers get it wrong, it's such an impediment to the next yeah. guy. And the yep. club is the one left dealing with the consequences of that failure. Yep. You know, so you, 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 there has to be a collective responsibility, in my opinion. There has to be what Ranik was saying, a very clear identity. This is how we want to play. These are the players we're going to target. These are, And, and in some ways, this also, you know, for the manager, you know, this uh, helps remove remove some of the responsibility. Like if 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 you need to have a collective decision over Anthony, yes. it's very easy to not blame Ten Hag on it and say, "Well, look, this is this is a club feeling, not just a you know." Because yeah. I can I can forgive Ten Hag for playing players that aren't good enough to hear it and sound. But 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 when you have complete autonomy, so you know, someone like Anthony, for example, if a new manager comes in in the summer, they're going to have to deal with this. 
they're going to yeah, have Yeah, and to he's play. probably going to still be here because it's going to be so hard to shift him. Yeah, so you're talking about a similar situation to Sancho where you're loaning him out, hoping that he yeah. recovers form because the cost of keeping him far outweighs the cost of getting rid of him. But again, it greatly impedes the football club with FFP and other issues in trying to recruit. So in this day and age, you simply cannot have a situation where you know a manager has autocracy to do whatever they want in the transfer market. Yeah, for sure. And and I think that's where it comes down to. It's just it's just not the modern way. It's just not. And it's not going to survive that. Uh, it's not going to survive that with any else. There's just no chance. Uh, the, the people, These people they're hiring, they're going to want to make decisions and they're going to have the, the ability to make decisions, no doubt about it, and, and they have that kind of influence. And this isn't the only place. You know, I mean, they're making changes at the top. They're going to keep making changes all the way down. Um, they're looking at everything. And, you know, obviously one of the areas we've we've spoken about in the past has been hugely problematic at United has been, you know, fitness and injuries and these types of things for years and years. Um, you know, and obviously Dave, Dave Brailsford, one of the things he's been highly focused on is fitness and performance. And that's something that can translate between different sports and things like that, because there's always a, you know, obviously there's different measures, different things that you want. But uh, at the end of the day, you, you you want peak performance out of an athlete. You want them to be able to perform Absolutely. at the highest level for them. And that is something Ineos have probably invested enormous amounts of time and money and study into. It doesn't 100% always translate to winning on its own, right? Because, of course, you still need talent. You still need tactics. You still need all of it. But it's something they know, and they know really well. Uh, and something that Dave Brailsford, I think, would be very focused on. And, and I, you know, I, I am certain, uh, and there'll be probably more to come on this very soon for me as well, uh, that, you know, this has been a focus of them, looking at the health, at the wellness, at the injuries yeah. and saying, mm -hmm. what's going on here? Yeah. This is wrong. Because this is something that provides immediate, immediate results when mm -hmm. you get it right and you start fixing it. When you can't field your best players, you lose. You just do. It and makes it harder for you. Four games, teams, it's unacceptable. Yeah, and and the and the problem is there's a whole lot that goes into this. You know, there's a, there's a lot of problems. There's players who don't trust United's medical department. Mm -hmm. That's been going on for years, and it continues. Mm -hmm. There's players yeah. that are they want to do their own plans. They want to they you know they they don't believe that what's being recommended for them is the right thing for their issues. You've seen things with surgeries being done outside of out of the club and whether approved or not, where they've had to be redone, you know, in, in cases of Lissandra Martinez and things like Malassia that. Um, yeah. And there, there's all, there's all, there's issues. I mean, Malassia has been gone forever. I mean, we don't even know why. Yeah. Yeah. The exactly. surgery went wrong as well. It, exactly. And and there's just a lot of issues and, and, and it's a problem for the players. And I do think this is an area we'll see some significant changes as well. And, and it's like kind of the non-sexy things that, you know, that will, at the end of the day, if you can field your best players for 90% instead of 70%, it makes a huge difference. You know, when you talk about things like marginal gains and the philosophy of Dave Brailsford, if you can field your players 5% more, your best players, that might be 5% more points. And you add those up with all the little things you're trying to do. It's a big deal. And I think there's a lot more improvement than 5% available in this regard um, but it has to be fixed, and I think it's something that uh, that we'll see some changes coming on. So here's the thing: all these other variables that are really important, right? Yep. Um, and I, I often, when I'm I'm talking to youth coaches about develop, youth development, 
you know, one of the things that we talk about is the overemphasis on the, the, the technical, right? Yeah. Where people say, oh, my job is to just have this uh, exceptional player. And we talked a little bit about Ten Hag's ruthlessness. And here's the thing. If you get a young player just and you, you know, technically develop them, make them an exceptional football player, they have all the attributes. They get to a point when they get about 16, 17. You go through the football pyramid at this level, you know, four or five players are going to advance, and then they're going to go to the next level, and then two or three, and then until you get to a point where you get to the top of the pyramid, and there's one or two. And all those pyramids converge, you know, the pyramids in this district, that district. So then all of a sudden you get to about 16. You're playing with players of commensurate ability to you. And then it becomes about mental, Okay. What happens after that and how players develop at professional level is 90% mental because they all have the, the capabilities. And it's use this metaphor. This is like building a Ferrari, right? And you have the best aerodynamics, the best engine, the best engineering, this, this, and you get this car on the track that has all this incredible capacity to perform any other vehicle on the track. But yep. your driver's impaired. And if your driver hits the wall with the car, it doesn't matter about how good your engineering is, your aerodynamics, all that stuff. So if you get a player that has all these attributes, but mentally they're they're lacking, or maybe their confidence, or maybe their environment is not conducive yeah. to their development, or in the sense of Jaden Sancho, I'm not going to just single him out. There's lots of you know lots of players that you needed, you know, that yeah. didn't have the mental cognitive tools to handle pressure and all these things you have to also have an environment that makes sure the driver is in their best mental and physical shape yes. because we have not had that at united so this is when we talk about the the the, the health side of it you know this is where this becomes really important so the marginal gain side of it you know that is really really important and so um yeah. You know, so you know, there's no bad professional football players, but you will see situations where players with average ability will have a 15-year career. Gary Neville, for example, decent right back, had a brilliant 15-year career because of the cognitive abilities. And then you'll see yeah. players that have exceptional talent that are out of the game in three, four years because yep. they have. They're, and it's not always their fault. Jim, sometimes it's about yeah. kids that come from broken homes, that are, there's abuse yeah. at home, there's you know alcoholism at home, it's highly related to their peers, it's how they deal with yeah. social media pressure. Lots of young players have imposter syndrome because they feel worthless because of their 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 shame of poverty or something in their background that prohibits yeah. growth. United have never really shown an appetite to address those types of things. And I think they, if you want to get optimal performance from an athlete, if you overlook the physical and mental side and how they're prepared, you have no chance. Absolutely. You, you're going to keep getting, and not just physical injury, psychological injuries. You're going to get players faking injury. I mean, Mourinho used to complain about players not wanting to play through the paint barrier. You know, players, I don't want to play in this game. I'm going to get battered four or five. No, all that stuff. So this is yep. really, really important. Just to shift the conversation, um, still on any else, but one thing that did a little concern me a bit, um, people may find this odd. So in my conversation with the individual, um, they were telling me that any of us were consulting with Ferguson quite a bit on um, internal restructuring. Now, Ferguson undoubtedly was a great football manager, undoubtedly, right? Yeah. But he was a great football manager in a different era. 
Yep. One of the things United have to learn from, and 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 this is where I have some nuance on the whole Jude Bellingham John Murder thing, is when Sir Matt Busby retired, he still had an office at the ground, right? And yep. players were still going in calling him boss. So Frank O'Farrell and anyone else that followed Busby had no chance, right? Because they didn't respect his authority. So yep. if you start bringing players like Jude Bellingham to Manchester United because Ferguson convinced them, what does that do to the manager, right? I mean, you look at the Ronaldo situation, right? You know, Ronaldo going complaining to Ferguson about Ten Hag and everything else. You know, that, yep. that to me is, is, is a problem. And United have to emerge from the Ferguson era as great as it was. This is why I think Omar Brad is really, really important. Yeah. Um, and have a whole new vision because in some sense, Ferguson's success prevented United from modernizing the football club. And um, I think that Ferguson has value, but I, I don't think you need to overrate his value. And I don't think he should be central to any restructuring of a football club. I agree with you in general. Um, it's, it's a tricky concept because a lot of people look at it and they think, well, you know, Sir Alex is a legend. He's done this and that. And that's all true, of course. And, and none of it takes it away from him. But what is he a legend of? What has he done? You know, as a manager, that's what he's been. That's, mm -hmm. that's his success. That's his... You know, there are many people in life who are incredible at some things yes, and not other things. This is not because you, you, I want to say something about that. That is just a really great point, right? So Elon Musk, right, is someone that yeah. divides opinion. Elon Musk is clearly an extremely intelligent human being in certain fields. But I'm convinced that if Einstein was on social media, yeah. you'd find out that he's fucking clueless on a lot of other things. <laughs> Right? This yeah, is exactly. true. Anyone like you, you know, yeah. football is really good at one particular thing. You know, the yeah. best theoretical physicist is brilliant at theoretical physics, but other fields they're just as clueless as you and me. Yeah. So I think yep. like you're absolutely correct that they're exceptional at one or two things, but that does not an, an expert that does not make in all these other fields. Correct. I mean, I have so many examples from American sports. I mean, Michael Jordan mm. was the greatest basketball player yeah. of all time and one of the worst football owners or basketball owners, I should say. Uh, his team is always literally the worst in, in the NBA for a long time. Uh, the coach who coached the Chicago Bulls at that time, Phil Jackson, was one of the greatest coaches of all time. Also very poor in management roles and things like that as oh, well. Man, That's not it, it goes on and on. You know, you have it just it, – it, it's constant. It's really funny because you'll get some of the more success. I mean, look at managers, for example, in terms of how players translate to managers. Pep Guardiola wasn't one of the greatest – football players of all times, but he's certainly one of the greatest managers of all time. And you get a lot of examples of things like that that occur uh, across the board in, in sports. And, and the thing about it is I understand utilizing Sir Alex's, you know, ear and wisdom and things like that as a, as a not just a courtesy. It's not like, oh, well, you know, talk to Sir Alex out of, out of kindness or something like that. But because, of course, he has a lot of involvement in the club and a connection to fans and things like that. And I can understand all of that. But I don't think it would be correct either to say, hey, you know, let's hire the people he says we should hire. Let's set up the club the way he says we should mm -hmm. set it up. I don't think that's what's going to happen. But I think it's very easy to connect the dots between a lot of conversations they would be having with him. And, you know, uh, 
putting it together like, well, he's going to be advising on all of these sorts of things. I mean, Ineos are talking to a lot of people. But do you think that Sir Alex said, you know, CEO, there's this guy at Citigroup, Omar Barada. You should bring mm -hmm. him in. Absolutely not. Okay. That was not a conversation that occurred, you know. Fergie wasn't oh, even yeah. a coach, James. Yeah. He <laughs> was he was very early on the training field. I mean, yeah, I know. He said many times he brought in lots of new assistants all the time to keep things fresh and bring so new So this ideas. is really important, yeah. right? So yeah. uh, pedagogy is hard, right? So if you look at – you take Michael Jordan as an example. Yep. And you said, Michael, teach me how you became the best basketball player in the world. I don't know how it happened. It just happened. I know. You know, it's, no, it's so funny. But, successful people have such a hard time explaining yeah, why they're successful. Yeah, because yeah. there's so many variables in the human brain about how we learn. I mean, there's no objectivity to this. If, if, if a kid comes yeah. up to you and says, um, you know, hey, Zinedine Zidane, how many keepy-ups do I need to do before I learn how to do 10 in a row? Was there an objective answer? I don't know. It all depends on you. It all depends. I, I don't know. We, so the threshold between knowing something and not knowing something is not well defined. The other yeah. thing is what players have that all, uh, people who have never played have is experience. Now, yeah. not all experience is good experience. There's a lot yes. of people traumatized by experiences that happened early on in their career that prevent development um yep. so you know there's an old saying uh with an experienced man few things are possible with beginners man many things are possible and the other thing is james experience is a teacher in a sense that it can help you give advice but if you ask Solskjaer to explain the experience of scoring a winner in the 19 in the, in the 99 champions league final spend his whole life trying to explain that it's yeah. simply impossible right so experience you know, there's analytical learning, there's experiential learning. I understand yeah. that. You know, we, we, if, if we all learn from analytics, we'd no one would drink and drive. We have to learn a lot from experience. I get that. But that's the point is it's really, really hard to pass experience on to someone else. So, yes, I have experience playing the game, but how I can communicate that in such a way that's going to help you in the heat of the moment where you have to make a split-second decision is not – something that i don't think has enormous cash value i think you have to experience that yourself so you know i think um people misunderstand the difference between you know uh execution and, yes. and, and and teaching and there's a reason why people who teach economists or economists in colleges and universities aren't billionaires you know because there's a whole yeah. different skill in how to execute that and there's a you know a generic discussion about the discipline itself but yeah no i i, I think um you know, Ferguson has value. He was exceptional at what he does. Um, I also think, James, that if Ferguson tried to replicate his success today with the method that he used yeah. when he was successful, it wouldn't be successful. I think that you know yeah. the rate of change is so is is is, is so quick that um, now that's that's not a criticism of Ferguson. None of it takes it away from him. It's yeah, just yeah. He just had to compete with who he was competing with in his era, you know. But I don't uh, think that some of the things that worked today would have worked 20 years ago. No, in the slightest, no. they would have got destroyed, decimated, you know. They, so, what Alan Hansen said, you'll never win anything with kids. I think yeah. that would be true today, right? Yeah. Um, I yeah. think it's, um, you know, given all the other, there's just too many areas now where you can separate yourself from the competition yeah. if you do it well. And some of these we've talked about, about 
what they do off the field and how they prepare athletes. That is a big thing. Let me ask you, uh, lots of players going out. Uh, Mesbury has gone to yeah. Sevilla, 20 million buyer clause. They were horrendous at the weekend, by the way. I watched them. <laughs> um, they have to stay up. <laughs> I mean, I was just sitting here yesterday. I was watching Zerona and I'm going, you know, Sevilla are in serious, serious trouble. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, obviously, his buyer clause is contingent upon them staying up. I, I don't um, think they're going to trigger it anyway, to be quite honest. I, I don't well, think it has much to do with him as a player, but we'll see. Uh, it's we'll more see. than them as a club, yeah. But uh, hopefully, at the very least, it's a beneficial loan for him. A um, number of other players have gone out. United, it looks like they're going to move on. Palestri on loan to Granada, club you have good relationships with. Um, uh, so the question is, do United need to do anything in this January transfer window? My view is... United do not need a cheaper meeting that have scored three goals in 14 games or something this season. And what you're going to get on loan, if you want to get a loan sign and it's great if you're a football club where you've got nine or ten positions that are totally settled and you're, you you, you yep. just need some cover, fine. But you're not going to get a transformative loan sign in January that's going to change, you know, that, that's going to have a massive fundamental change in how you play. That's a supplement. I mean, I, I would like another striker, but truthfully, um, I'm not sure even a lone striker saying it at this point really helps United. Yeah, I mean, it, it's always got to be a little bit of a cost-benefit analysis type of thing when you look at it, um, short and long-term and all that. And when you look at the financial situation that they're dealing with, I was told over the weekend I shared, I don't, they're not really working on anything at the mm. moment. You know, there's talk of Brian Brabby, that's not going to happen. Um, Chupo Moting is not going to happen, I don't believe. There was talk before of Werner, and I was like, oh, Werner. And then we played Spurs, and you showed exactly why you don't need Timo Werner in the team because he can't score goals. And uh, in the Premier League, he doesn't finish. Is there some dream player available? I mean, the best player available to come in and fix their goal scoring problem? Is uh, Green Benzema and uh, Mason Greenwood back from loan, and I don't think either of those are going to be happening for United in this window, but outside of those two, I don't see any solutions football-wise on the pitch that's going to solve any problems. That's going to be worth adding another five million to FFP debt, you know, to to the losses that they're going to experience this year, and and put any sort of scupper on what they can do next season. So I, I think that's the problem. And with Benzema, I understand the attraction, right? But you bring Kareem Benzema in, Kareem Benzema is not going to be a backup striker to Rasmus Hordens. Right. right. So are you Hoyland is now just starting to find his form. They're not yeah. going to have an enormous amount of games between now and the end of the season. He's going to have two weeks off, and the next game is going to be against Newport, you know, in the FA Cup. Um, so you know the the need maybe for a second striker is starting to disappear a bit because you know the intensity of the games. And are you really doing Hoyland a huge favor by putting someone like Kareem Benzema in front of him now when he's just yeah. starting? as with them yeah I, I would agree i don't think you do much. i don't think that's the right type of player you know i think cavani uh, was it was actually a really great option for the for the front line when they had him for the first year in terms of learning i would I, we, we want him to be available more right but he clearly taught a lot to the players about movements they would it, when he played it was a different team and um you know and he wasn't the type of player attitude wise who seemed like he would cause any sort of issue and needing to be the you know the out and out starter every day 
you know, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo didn't benefit the players underneath him in that respect. I wouldn't expect him to, you know, you're not having a striker learn from him in that respect because he's going to be there all the time. And I think at this point, you're better off letting Rasmus Hoyland continue to just play and keep doing what they've been doing the last few games with Rashford and Garnacho and, and try to take something positive away from the development and the experience of the season in that respect. And I think that's probably what they're going to do. Um, I can't, I can't say it's a bad thing. I, I really know people would want to make some moves and get something out of this season, but it was so much going on in the position of where we're in. I can very much understand why you don't want to go and just waste money or potentially cause a problem for, for, you know, someone like, uh, Rasmus Hoyland stunt their development or do anything like that or create a problem for the future either. Yeah, I can't disagree with that. Uh, is there anything else we haven't covered yet before we go? I think that should do it. I think that about uh, gets us up to date with everything that's that we've wanted to, to touch on. Like I mentioned, I'll probably have something more with regard to further changes mm. that will come through Ineos on, on, a, on a few different things, but also, you know, health medical the things that they're they're looking at that they're assessing everything so uh, a lot more changes to come i think is the is the view of this the 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 ceo appointment is just the first in a long line of of things to come Uh, a couple of messages folks before we go one um i'm going to be starting another podcast series slightly on united but it's on united but but it's going to be interviews with different fans from all across the world uh to get their Perspective on United, United stories um, about you know their best home, best away games, why they supported United, their view on everything that's going on. It's going to feature different people. I'm going to have Pete, people like Pete Boyle on, Andy Mitten, and what have you. So, um, and um, I hope my colleague will join me for a podcast on that because I'm oh, really yeah. interested to hear about uh, United's diaspora is so diverse, and one of the most amazing parts of the United We Stand podcast that I really love is the random interviews with fans all across the world who have so many amazing yeah. stories about why they love Manchester United, what does Manchester United mean to them. And um, I'm so I'm going to be uh, in contact with a lot of people um, and uh, I'm really looking forward to doing that. So it's going to encompass a lot of different areas. It's going to encompass fan culture, you know, the Glazers, you know, about, um, you know, the, the trying to find homogeneity amongst United fans, despite coming from very diverse backgrounds, about what future, the future of football looks like, about the things that are important for fans, about, um, you know, mental health, about uh, lots of different topics. So I'm really looking forward to getting that up and running. Lastly, um, folks, this is an important message. I want to start integrating this into the podcast. It's about supporting fanzines. Um, so obviously, two of United's main fanzines are Red News and United We Stand. These are vital, vital conduits for fans and um, making sure that, uh, and the club, of course, between fans and the club, and giving you a, uh, some diversity viewpoint on Manchester United rather than a, a condensed you know, sanitized message from a football club. These fanzines are so important. You know, it's, if you're a football fan across the world, you can subscribe to these digitally um, or you can subscribe to these um, physically where you get a magazine delivered to yeah. you personally. I would strongly suggest you follow someone like Barney at Red News. Um, uh, and, and if you can, um, or of course, Andy Mitten or the United We Stand um, fanzine. And if you can subscribe to them, Honestly, um, 
They are exceptional. They're funny. They are really, really well-informed. They have gossip segments in there that are really, really interesting that um, are better than pretty much anything you're going to see on the internet. Um, and uh, I've been a, a fanzine subscriber ooh, since I was about 13, 14 years of age. I used to do the Red Issue 1, and the Red Issue was quite militant. Um, but um, the level of journalism in, in, in these fanzines are absolutely crucial, are really, really well-informed. And there's never been a single time when I haven't picked one of those up, read it, and learned something I didn't know. Um, yep. And they have tentacles inside the club. Uh, if mm-hmm. you want gossip, you want stuff that's going on inside United, um, there are a few better places than fanzines. So if you could, folks, support our fanzine, support um, a veiled voice of the fans. Um, but one of the reasons why, like you said, I wanted to do the other podcast on uh, giving United fans a voice is because there's so few that give fans that voice. It's all about trying to get players on. It's all about trying to get ex-players on. But, um, you know, as fans, it's really important that um, we have something that's specifically designed for us. So um, I would please ask that you support them because they need your support. So uh, we will go ahead and leave it there, mate. Um, yeah. So once again, for everything, and like I said, we will be back again next week. Um, I've been well, we have a game to talk about. Yeah, we'll have an FA Cup game, right? Yeah, yeah have an FA Cup game. Uh, uh I was going to ask you about Anana before we left, but uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't want to end this on a. I don't. I don't want to take him out, but some concerns. But um, yeah, I hope things go turn around a little bit. Yeah, I really do. Situation. I do. But all right, folks, we'll leave it there. Thanks to all yep. of you for downloading the podcast. As always, for following myself and James, and yeah, thanks uh, so much. On our YouTube channel, as always, that is uh, very much appreciated. That helps a lot. And share it with your friends, whatever. That is the best way to support the show. Um, so take it easy, mate. Thanks, James. Yep, take it easy. See you later. See ya. Bye.